Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, it's Herd Tell Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's March the 8th, year of our Lord 2022 rolls on. A lot to cover on today's show as we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle. A couple different stories we're going to touch in. Some of them we've been covering for a while. We're going to talk about these humanitarian corridors in Russia. They are not being covered right. This is a trap. This is a Russian weapon that they use. We know it is. We've seen it before. We're going to touch back in with it. The BBC covering even the Ukrainians are saying now, well, these aren't right because they're funneling all our people into Russia. We'll touch into that story. Uh, well, in the program, we always end on a good note. Amazing story out of Ireland. Uh, a man who has rallied his community to not only provide stuff for Ukraine, he's making sure it gets to Ukraine by taking it there himself from Ireland, making back and forth trips, an amazing story of the human spirit. We will touch on that. Also, uh, we something we've been covering already on Herd Tell, national media is starting to catch up to it, uh, Hispanic and Latino voters not doing what folks predicted they would do. We know what they're going to do because we bring on friends like Mark Yazagiri and Eric Garcia lately. If you miss them, go back and watch it. But we're going to retouch on that story. CNN has a piece out about that going into the midterms. But first, let's talk about Russia. Um, there's a habit of people to slam whatever's going on into what they were already doing. And there's too many people in America who have been completely ate up with culture warring and cultural politics and these sorts of matters that when the Ukraine thing happened, they don't know how to turn the switch off. The danger in that is now been evident in Russia itself. Uh, the head of Russia's Orthodox Church, uh, his name is Krill, Patriarch Kirill. I think I'm saying that right. But I really don't care what his name is because he's a toady for Vladimir Putin. He's a stooge investments. He's using the edifices of his office and the church to be a, a stooge for Putin and prop him up for whatever Putin wants to do. I want you to listen to some comments he made this past Sunday in a worship service. Patriarch Kirill said, quote, which side of God's humanity will be on in the divide between supporters of gay pride events or the Western government that allows them and their opponents in Russian backed Eastern Ukraine? Quote, pride parades are designed to demonstrate that sin is one variation of human behavior. That's why in order to join the club of those countries, you have to have a gay pride parade, he said in his Forgiveness Sunday sermon. What? President Vladimir Putin ordered the deadly, quote, special operation, that's the lie he's saying for his war of aggression, in Ukraine on February 24th to, quote, demilitarize and denazify. We've already covered extensively on this program the lie that both of those are. 
the pro-Western country after recognizing Eastern Ukraine's two breakaway territories and independent republics. And now his toady investments, this patriarch Kirill, is saying, well, of course he had to invade. They have gay pride parades over there. Now, I really don't care what your opinion on gay folk are. There's no excuse for invading a country, for leveling cities, for using hundreds of thousands of troops to level cities, kill civilians, harass people, and take over an innocent country. And then you're going to say that's the reason. We better be careful with our rhetoric. We are so ate up in America right now because we're privileged and we don't have to fight wars that we argue over cultural stuff. And it's not that those things are not important. But we talk about drag queen story hour as if it's going to be the end of the republic, as if that wasn't going to go on anyway, whether you paid attention to it or not. But is drag queen story hour an excuse to go and invade another country? There's people right now that write columns and opine on TV and have YouTube channels and radio shows that would tell you it is, that it's such a bad thing that we should take up arms and forcibly take rights from those people, that we should strip the First Amendment from them that they shouldn't have any rights. How dangerous is that to do, though? How important is it to maintain the rights of people you disagree with, maybe even vehemently disagree with, but you should maintain their rights to be the way they are? This is why. Because now you have the state-sanctioned Church of Russia telling Vladimir Putin that it's absolutely okay for him to kill thousands of civilians and make war on an innocent country and level whole cities because of gay pride? It's utter nonsense. But people that are so ate up with this cultural stuff, not understanding that underneath your disagreements, you need to be empathetic and sympathetic to your fellow man. And they don't understand that this is the end of the road that they start down when you start otherizing people, big O otherizing, that they shouldn't have rights, that they're not people anymore, that they're wrong. And then you start talking yourself into thinking that they're not just wrong, but they're evil and they're wicked and they're out to get you and they're going to destroy your country and they're going to destroy your family. And you start feeding all this garbage and poison into your mind. And what's the end result? You get people like Patriarch Kirill, who stands in the front of his church holding a big cross with that goofy looking hat on his head and talking about Vladimir Putin as if he's the great defender of Christianity. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to answer to my God for invading another country, for having the blood of innocent civilians all over my hands, and then try to explain to him that it was all in his name. I don't think that's going to go real well for them when they stand for their judgment. And if you believe differently, just think of it in practical terms. Religion has been the excuse for war and all kinds of ill manner to human beings for as long as there's been people. Is your religion and your religious beliefs and your faith leading you to a better world? Is it leading you to enlightenment? Is it leading you to be a better person and a better citizen and a better country and a better community? Or is it starting down a path where if you didn't check your own emotions, you could sit under a sermon like what Patriarch Kirill said, and you'd nod along instead of realizing the evil that was coming out of his mouth, despite the vestments of the church draping across his shoulders. More hotel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Hi, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Folks, one of the things we pride ourselves on here is not just reacting to the news, 
but understanding the news. And often case, if you're real careful and try to pay attention to what's going on in the world, you can be ahead of the news a little bit. And we've done this on this story, a CNN headline. Democrats' problem with Hispanic voters isn't going away as GOP gains seem to be solidifying. Well, if you listen to this program, you already knew that. We've had on Mark Izagiri, who talked about the Rio Grande Valley. We had our buddy Eric Garcia come on. He talked about demographic changes and how they're kind of missing the boat because a lot of these folks that talked about demographics equal destiny forgot there's things like economics and education level, like Eric talked about, um, things like regional specific things like Mark Izagiri talked about in the Rio Grande Valley, where Democratic Party is talking about things like defund the police. Well, that don't go over well in the Rio Grande Valley because they are the police in those areas of the country. Same thing in South Florida and other places. Anyway, CNN, late to the party, decided to join us on this, quote, the Democratic Party's early 2000 dreams of an emerging majority based on a diversifying electorate has run into a reality. Democrats lost the 2016 presidential election and then barely won in 2020. Part of the problem was declining support among white voters. But by the 2020 election also pointed to another problem. Hispanic voters who are growing as a proportion electorate, and we already talked about with both Mark and Eric, that's the fastest growing demographic in America based off the census data we just got. But it's also a diversifying demographic. Back to CNN. Hispanic voters moving towards the Republican Party. Recent polling and now this week's Texas primaries, we also covered that, show that these Republican gains don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Texas is a heavily Hispanic state relative to the country as a whole. 16 counties in Texas where Hispanics make up at least 80% of the citizens' voting age population, according to the latest Census Bureau. The county with the highest percentage of Hispanic adult citizens, Star County, Texas, backed Joe Biden by five points after voting for Hillary Clinton by 60 points four years earlier. That's not a misprint. It was a 55-point swing. Regularly scheduled primaries, of course, don't feature a Democratic candidate versus a Republican candidate. We can, however, look at the relative turnout between the Democratic and Republican primaries. This is instructive in Texas, where voters don't register by party and can choose which party. All told, listen to this stat, 27% of Texans who voted Tuesday, that'd be last Tuesday's primary, in the 16 most Hispanic counties cast a ballot in the Republican primary. This may not seem like a lot, but consider that in 2018, just a few years ago, only 15% of those voted in either the Democratic or Republican primary, primary cast a ballot on the Republican side. And in Starr County, that county with the highest percentage, 24% of primary voters were cast on the Republican side on Tuesday. It was basically nothing in 2018 with a mere 0.2, not 2, 0.2% of primary voters being cast on the Republican side. That is a 24-point shift in only five years. That's an amazing swing. And it's happening all over the country. And if you listen to her tell, you already knew about it because we've been covering it. Demographics are not destiny. Demographics are a milepost to tell you where things are going, but it doesn't tell you how it's going to get there. It doesn't tell you when it's going to get there. It doesn't tell you whether it's going to get there at all. And we're going to continue to talk about things like the Hispanic electorate or any other demographic the way it should be covered. As a group of people, not as a monolith, not as a data point, because when you start seeing people just as data, it leads you down to bad roads, because then you start wondering why the data isn't doing what you're thinking it should do and you expect it to do. It's because it's not data, it's people. People have feelings and they have outside factors. This is very important in the way we cover things on Hertel. 
Never forget all those data points, all them demographics, all those political things. Those are people, and they're going to have their own mind about how to do things. We should cover it accordingly, whether they're Hispanic or anybody else. More Herd Tell right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, let's talk a little bit about policing and funding and crime and things like this. President brought it up in the State of the Union. Our friend here, Josh Crawford from Young Voices, uh, he was writing about it before that and kind of presaged that this was going to be a part of the president's package. Josh, how are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Doing very well. Thanks for having me. It's always a good feeling when you write something and say this is going to happen. And then a couple of weeks later, it happened. Uh, you pulled that off here. You wrote in town hall back in February uh, the 15th about that President Biden was going to, I don't know if you call it a pivot, but he was going to emphasize funding the police. We know this is after a couple of years of defund the police by certain uh, people on the left and out of the social justice movement. How did it feel when he announced it in the State of the Union? You kind of projected it that it was going to happen, but how did it land with you? Well, I'd still prefer to be better at predicting March Madness than than these kinds of things. But uh but, you know, President Biden never fully embraced the defund movement, the defund ideology or even the defund rhetoric, uh, and frankly, has a, a pretty strong track record of leveraging federal resources to local departments. Uh, the first time that was really done was in the 94 crime bill, which uh, he was one of the primary Senate authors of. Um, and as as crime sort of started to hit their radar, especially some of these skyrocketing homicide rates, in some of our large urban areas, one of the places that they went very quickly was uh, increasing federal funding to local departments. And so I'm, I'm pleased that he included that in his State of the Union because it is good policy. It's smart policy. It's been evaluated a number of times and is an effective crime reduction tool. Uh, but on its own, it will be insufficient to address what's gone on in the country over the last six years or so. Now, when he said it in the State of the Union, he actually emphasized it. I don't know if that was in the copy or not. He said it three or four times. He emphasized it, fun. You know how Joe Biden has that, you know, we're familiar with his speaking. He said, fun, fun, fun. Uh, that was not accidental. Obviously, this has, uh, before we get into the policy part of it, which you detail, there's a lot of optics to this. It is an election year. Uh, there is concerns about the crime rate along with other issues. This was an optics move to make sure he emphasized it above and beyond the policy that we're going to talk about later, wasn't it? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that uh, the American people have repeatedly demonstrated that they trust Republicans on issues of public safety more than they do Democrats. Uh, I think that has been exacerbated by some of the far left rhetoric that has happened over the last couple of years related to not just defunding the police, but but members of the squad who have said things like abolish police, abolish prisons, uh, that polls really poorly in addition to the fact that it's bad policy. And so President Biden is sort of the de facto head of the Democrat Party, I think, is trying to cut the head off that snake and saying, no, we can believe in reforming various aspects of policing, but we absolutely believe in funding the police adequately. Yeah, Josh Crawford, a attorney in his own right, head of the Pegasus Institute out there in Louisville, Kentucky. Make sure you don't say the middle part of the word. They get upset at that sort of thing up there. Um, you've been a prosecutor before. 
How do you think prosecutors and police officers and the criminal justice, when they hear that from the president after a couple of years of ambiguity from the Democratic Party, how do you think it lands with them? So I think that it goes one of two ways, right? I think for some folks, it's refreshing because it means that there's bipartisan support for this idea of adequately funding law enforcement appropriately, of taking the, the crime problem, especially the homicide problem, seriously. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of folks who are going to look at it skeptically as well. Um, at the same time that we've had this to fund the police movement, we've had this movement in large cities of these progressive prosecutors who uh, decide which crimes they will and will not uh, prosecute, which enhancements they will and will not use in ways that are more political than policy or public safety driven. Um, and so I think there's probably going to be a lot of skepticism. But uh, if if President Biden puts uh, his money where his mouth is on this, I think that there can be some some really positive outcomes. Yeah. And you've been on both sides of this. Again, you've been a prosecutor. You're in the policy world now more so. Um, let me just ask it this way, big picture, before we drill down in the policy. Why do we bifurcate this issue? Why is it always and I know the answer is the media and because it's it's so people can argue. Why do we always got to bifurcate these things to the extreme of, well, we're going to defund the police or we're going to give the police everything they want and have no accountability with the police either? And both of those things are the polar opposites of getting the results of what both of those groups of people claim to be wanting to get. How do we get out of that doom loop of doing that, do you think? Yeah, I think part of that is just sort of in, in the time period that we live in where everything is so echo chamber oriented and social media tends to amplify uh, the extremes of both positions. There are folks who have a disposition towards public safety, towards law enforcement, towards that approach. There are folks who have a disposition towards uh, criminal defendants and uh, larger notions of justice and things like that. And it's always been that way, but uh, the extremes have sort of been amplified over the last couple of years so that you find fewer and fewer people saying things like gang violence is a serious problem in our cities, but we should also move to perhaps a treatment model as it relates to, to drug addicts as opposed to an incarceration model, right? Uh, both of those things are true. Both of those things probably should be approaches that we take. Uh, but one of those lies more in one political ideology and one more in the other. Uh, and people are just sort of entrenched in those. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford. All right, let's get into the, the nitty gritty here and turn the noise down on a little bit. The crime rate people perceive it to be up? What does the numbers say? Is the crime rate rising? And what is causing that crime rate rise? Yeah. So when you talk about crime rates, you're talking about all crime, right? Um, what really is up considerably over the last six years is homicides in particular, and a few other violent offenses, things like carjackings, uh, are up considerably. And that really begins in 2015. There's a substantial increase in homicides, uh, 2015 over 2014. There's another increase 2016 over 2015. Things kind of level off over the next couple of years and then explode again in 2020 and again over and above that in 2021. And so we've sort of had this six-year trend, especially as it relates to homicides, of sort of up or even, uh, very little by way of decline. Um, and so you see a lot of people talk about the last couple of years, but it really is sort of the last six years. Um, property crime has, has been pretty stable over that time period. Violent crime as a category, uh, again, is, is up over that time period as well. The, the reasons why are, are many fold. Uh, I always tell people to be skeptical of somebody who tells you that this is the one reason this thing is happening. Um, but violence, uh, especially homicide, concentrates among a very small number of individuals 
uh, who engage who are engaged in interpersonal disputes, largely within the subcontext of gangs or street groups. For your listeners who aren't academics, street groups walk like gangs, talk like gangs, act like gangs, just don't meet the uh, academic or official definitions of gangs because they lack hierarchy, but, but they're essentially gangs. Um, concentrates among those groups of people. And what you've seen over the last couple of years is increased activity among those individuals, especially in the last several years. There was a paper that was done about six months ago about LA that basically said that like uh, stay home orders didn't uh, have gangs stay home. So uh, as governments were locking down, private citizens may have been staying home, but gang members were still very active on the streets. And all of this has gone on over a time period where there has been reduced uh, self-initiated police activity. Self-initiated police activity is everything that law enforcement does that's not a response to a call for service. So it is things like motor vehicle and street stops, but it's also broadly what we think of as community policing. And so as this sort of de-policing effort has gone on, you have the complicating factors of COVID, you have some some realignment among street gangs uh, across the country, and sort of it's this confluence of factors that has contributed to this significant increase in homicides, especially in our large cities. Now, it probably didn't affect the homicide rate directly, but I got to imagine it affected everything so much. How much did COVID affect policing and law enforcement? I know it had a massive effect on the criminal justice system because it backlogged an already backlogged uh, criminal justice system because you want to start talking about overcrowding people. That's the bottom end of the detention system to a T. Um, how much did that affect a lot of this? And then we're going to be seeing some backwash into the stats as we go forward, do you think? Yeah, so the... The big way that COVID impacted uh, homicides, especially, was that it it resulted in changes in law enforcement practices in an effort to reduce the spread, right? You had uh, far fewer community police interactions that weren't absolutely essential, right? So law enforcement was still responding to 911 calls if if your house was broken into or you were a victim of domestic violence or various things like that, right? But they weren't out uh, policing and interacting with folks. Uh, obviously, you have the complicating factors of, of protest and, and rioting that took place over the summer of 2020 uh, into the fall of that year. And so all of that contributes. But the, the problem is, is that as COVID dissipates and even as practices return to normal, violence tends to build on itself because so much violence is retaliatory in nature. So if you have a year with 50 homicides, that's only 50 potential instances of retaliation the following year. Well, if you have a year with 100 homicides, you now have 100 potential instances uh, of retaliation the following year. That doesn't obviously include non-fatal, hom- non-fatal shootings and things like that that also contribute to that. And so violence tends to build on itself that way, absent some sort of intervention. And there are, there are strategies that work to do that, uh, but you can't just hope that with COVID dissipating that the violence will dissipate as well. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford. Um, Along those lines, though, how big a deal is it? And especially when we start talking about funding later on on policy wise, crimes a lot like foreign policy. You either get ahead of it or you wind up with a real big mess later on down the road. Uh, why do you think we can't seem to have a steady focus? Uh, I know a lot of this is locally based because everybody has to police a little differently. Why can't we get some consistency on preventative measures as opposed to just chasing these stats? Because like you just said, chasing the stats kind of become a self-defeating thing. How's a way to change that narrative? Because the narrative is going to affect the policy, which affects the money, which affects how you actually go out and police these communities. How do we kind of get a, a door in there to start affecting that, do you think? Well, I think in many ways, public safety policy was a victim of its own success. 
we kind of figured this all out in the mid 1990s, right? And uh, New York City went from a city with you know 3,000 homicides a year to 300 homicides a year over a 25-year period, right? That's an incredible success. Uh, and lots of cities around the country, LA, other places, had similar successes, uh, not quite as large, not quite as deep, but they weren't starting in such a bad place. And so I think a lot of folks kind of took their eye off the ball because we had figured it out, right? We, we were reducing crime. Crime was on a 24-year uh, decline for, uh, for a, a period of time there from the 1990s until 2014. And so we could look around and say, like, hey, we've got this figured out. We don't have to worry about it. We can start worrying about other things. Um, but the problem is, is that, that public safety policy is like any other policy area, right? Just because you've figured something out in the tax code today doesn't mean that you can turn around and do whatever you want to the tax code tomorrow. Uh, just because you've figured out something in education policy today doesn't mean you can turn around and, and do whatever you want in education policy tomorrow. And the same kind of thing happened with public safety policy. Some people took their eye off and then some other people assumed that public safety was now a constant. You could do whatever you wanted and there wouldn't be ramifications. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on Herd Tell, we're going to get into some of these numbers. We're going to get into the specifics of the policy, uh, talking about uh, defund and fund the police, the eternal battle. Also talk a little bit about what's federal, what's local, another eternal struggle in the United States of America. Josh Crawford has the Pegasus Institute and an attorney. More with him right after this on Herd Tell. Welcome back to Herd Tell, continuing our conversation with Josh Crawford, talking a little law enforcement, criminal justice. Uh, let's let's look at some policy stuff here now and, and kind of dig into this, because you can throw the buzzwords around and we criticize the buzzwords. But if you don't have a policy to answer it, that's all you got. Uh, I constantly wonder here when you talk about things like funding and defunding police. We've learned with education. We've learned with foreign policy. You pick anything you want, just throwing money at something never, ever solves it. And most of the time, it usually makes it worse. Uh, the same is true in policing, isn't it? Yeah, there's an element of that that's definitely true. And especially when you talk about injecting federal dollars into local police departments. Um, I mentioned earlier that there have been a number of evaluations of these injections of money because it's, it's really happened in a substantial way twice. And one of the evaluations found that one of the, the downsides to this was that local police departments sometimes just use those federal dollars to supplant local dollars. So rather than using that money to plus up a police force or to buy new equipment or to upgrade the equipment or something like that, uh, or to move officers off a desk and onto the street and hire administrative support, they just took that money and then reduced their local uh, allocation of funds by whatever that dollar amount was. Um, and so there were a couple of departments that were evaluated after the 1990s injection of money that actually reduced their overall police force, uh, even though they accepted all this federal money. And so one of the things that needs to happen if the federal government is going to, to do an additional injection of money that way is to try to have some guardrails on it so that it does go to the deployment of additional officers onto the street who are doing the types of things that we want law enforcement officers to do. And that's the other thing uh, about this money that could be potentially beneficial is there are strategies and uh, approaches that work better than others, right? 
we know what works and we know what doesn't work when it comes to combating urban violence, especially homicides, especially. Um, and so incentivizing police departments to adopt those tactics and those strategies uh, through the leveraging of federal dollars can be really beneficial as well. Um, in, in sort of a strange uh, twist of fate, if you will, one of the major problems with these programs in the past is that the federal government hasn't had strings attached to it. They've just kind of thrown the money at it the way you've, you've articulated. Continuing to talk to Josh Crawford, uh, how does this play into people's uh, priors? Because it's it's always been fascinating to me that you have somebody, not to pick on anybody, but you have somebody that says, well, I'm a small government conservative. I believe in limited government. But then they don't ever apply that to the police, which is the armed enforcement arm of the U.S. government. Um, we talk about federal versus local. We talk about federalism. Why do we have this a little bit of a disconnect that we don't apply that when we start talking about police funding? And then it's things like, oh, well, we'll just take all this free federal money. That seems to cut through a lot of ideology in a big old hurry. Uh, is that what's happening with this? Or do people just really have a disconnect when it comes to federal funding for policing? So I think part of it is that uh, the protection of public safety is the most important domestic function of government, right? Um there are lots of things that governments do, state, local, and otherwise, uh, federal especially, that people who believe what I believe don't think that the government should be doing that. But it's at its base level, the very purpose of government is the protection of public safety. And so that means that the allocation of, of government resources of taxpayer money to the protection of public safety uh, is essentially the first place that that money should go, right? Uh, there are two really important caveats there, though. The first is, is that money being spent efficiently? Because that's still a valuable question. Just because it's an essential function of government doesn't mean that you throw money at it and just hope it works as opposed to testing whether or not it does work. And the second is, is what they're doing an actual function of the protection of public safety? Is it an actual uh, function of preserving public order, right? And I think that there's a lot of folks who would tell you that, that law enforcement does a, a wide variety of things that would be better suited for either non-law enforcement uh, entities or that could be done more efficiently if they adopted strategies and techniques that, that could more readily address those problems. And so uh, I think, especially in places where uh, conservatives have kind of taken the reins uh, over the years, New York City under uh, Mayor Giuliani and uh, Commissioner Bratton, Bill Bratton, being sort of the prime example of like, yeah, they, they plussed up resources and the police department had uh, not, not whatever it wanted, but, but more, more to that than in, in previous iterations, but they were also very accountable. They did a lot of things to root out corruption within the NYPD over that time period. And that's because I think those folks understood that this is not only an essential function of government, but it is the entity of government with which the public is most likely to interact, right? Uh, most people's interaction with an agent of government is primarily going to be a law enforcement officer. And so if, if people don't trust police or they have a negative interaction with law enforcement, that not only reflects law enforcement, but it reflects government. And so you have to do sort of all of the above if you're going to take an approach that is really successful over the long term. Yeah. And we're talking to Josh Crawford, Pegasus Institute, an attorney and a Young Voices contributor. Uh, this is an ugly, hard question, but I'm just going to ask it because that's where we're at with this conversation. When we talk about police accountability and you just mentioned it, that, yeah, the, the things like in New York City, you have to have the accountability element of it. The one thing that everybody should be able to agree on, whether they're social justice folks or conservatives, 
you need accountability and policing. The hard truth of this is there's just no other mechanism for true accountability and policing other than the funding and controlling the funding to make sure people are accountable, is it? Well, so the the interesting thing about that is that crime concentrates among a small number of people and a small number of micro locations. Police misconduct also concentrates among a small number of officers. And so um, there have been a number of evaluations done that have found, you know, that north of 50% of complaints in an entire department are against a relatively small number of officers. And so what there actually needs to be are mechanisms by which the, the bad actors are, are dealt with as bad actors, as opposed to trying to either financially or structurally change the department, change entire policies. That's one of the things that we're kind of living through the consequences of here in Louisville, was long before the, the botched execution of a warrant that resulted in the death of uh, Breonna Taylor, there was a high profile incident in which a, a young black man was pulled over by two LMPD officers and the LMPD officers um, it, it didn't assault this young man whatsoever, but, but mistreated him verbally. I mean, we're, we're inappropriate with him verbally. And rather than reprimand those officers or retrain those officers or retrain the entire department on how to deal with those things, LMPD changed its motor vehicle stop policy. And so because of the actions of of two officers and the, the perceived community reaction to those actions, the entire stop policy changes and there's some negative consequences associated with that stop policy. And so what policymakers actually have to be able to do is to, to recognize the reality of the concentration of those misdeeds and then uh, adjudicate those misdeeds accordingly. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford, you talked about it in your piece you wrote back in February. Uh, you used the term hyper-focus. Um, the problem is, of course, the federal government doesn't do hyper-focus really good. But when you right. talk about things like uh, violence intervention, like the federal government's great at, here's money, go hire a bunch more police officers. They're, they're right. good at that. But that's not solving the problem. These local policies, like you just said, you have these focus groups that need attention. You have focused areas that need attention. How do we marry those two? How do we get that square peg in that round hole of you have the the federal money to come in and try to help local municipalities that might be over their head? But at the same time, those pieces are incongruent with each other. Uh, Talk about that a little bit and how we can maybe streamline that process some. Yeah, the protection of public safety and the preservation of public order is primarily the responsibility of local police departments enforcing state laws, right? The federal government has a role to play in the form of task forces. Uh, Obviously, there are federal laws that can be broken. There are federal law enforcement agencies, but it is primarily the responsibility of local departments enforcing state laws. And so because of that, The federal government can uh, inject money into some of these places to help solve some of these problems, and that's valuable. And the federal government can and should be repositories of information on best practices. Um, If something works well in Boston, it doesn't mean that Omaha knows that it exists. And so the, the federal government can help say, hey, this thing has worked really well in Boston. They've replicated it in Baltimore and Minneapolis. And so, hey, Louisville, hey, Omaha, hey, Birmingham. Uh, you ought maybe to try this uh, because these these situations may be the same and it may work and it may not. Um, but primarily because you're t- talking about local law enforcement, uh, that is who is going to be uh, your primary entity that is responsible for the protection of public safety, but is also going to be able to be 
the most innovative and responsive to the specific needs of the community. There are some sort of universal truths in, in public safety policy. Like I said, a lot of it is, is the, what they refer to as the law, the law of crime concentration. Crime concentrates in uh, certain areas and among certain people. In large cities, about 5% of one block street segments are responsible for about 50% of your crime. Uh, so that's one block street segments. Uh, in small cities, it's like one, or excuse me, it's uh, two to 3% of one block street segments are responsible for 50% of your crime. Uh, the same is true of individuals. About 5% of offenders, not 5% of your population, 5% of offenders are responsible for 50% of your violence. That's about a half a percentage of your city's population are responsible for more than 50% of your violence. And so local departments know who those folks are. Uh, other entities and nonprofits know who those folks are because they're the same folks uh, that CPS is dealing with. They're the same folks that the schools are dealing with. And so when you focus on those individuals and the groups that they're a part of, again, those street groups or gangs, which are major contributors to a lot of this in our cities, then you can focus law enforcement resources on those folks where they need the law enforcement resources. And you can focus social service resources on those folks for, for a fair number of those people. They want to leave those lifestyles behind, uh, but, but lack the resources to do so. And by resources, I don't mean they lack the money to do so. I mean, they lack a government issue ID. They lack a, a driver's license. And so every time they drive a car, they're getting pulled over. They have money for rent, um, but don't have a, a savings account or something like that, right? And there's, there's ways to leverage these things to get folks onto successful paths in life that can help leave that lifestyle behind that are a lot more simple than most people think, right? Like most people think like, oh, this person needs to go get a college degree or, oh, this person needs to get a job. And there's some truth to that. But a lot of these folks have needs that are much more basic than that. And if you can meet those needs, then they can get themselves on a track where they can get a job or they can get some additional education and they can start to become uh, productive members of society. Yeah, talking to Joshua Crawford. Uh, he's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, let's put a bow on this with Louisville, Kentucky, though. We started with President Biden, the State of the Union, the pomp and circumstances, the concentration of political power. You are in a city that was front and center uh, with social justice and criminal justice issues for the better part of two years now, really. As you dedicated, it wasn't just Breonna Taylor. There was stuff before that. There's been stuff since that. Put a personal face on it for people that just see a headline in Louisville and the national headline, though, because you live there. All those resources you talk about when there's contention between the community and the police, those resources get stretched in, in ways that are unhelpful. The police get stretched in ways that are unhelpful. The citizens are stretched and unhelpful. Just talk on a personal level what it's like in a city when the police and the community are not working in partnership. And that kind of just messes up everything else, doesn't it? Well, what happens when those things aren't operating the way they're supposed to is Trinity Randolph. Trinity Randolph was a three-year-old girl who uh, in, in the middle of the day was executed in her front yard uh, along with her father and uh, while she played in a playhouse and was buried in a Disney coffin. When those things don't work well, it's DeQuante Hobbs Jr., who was a seven-year-old boy who was sitting at his kitchen table eating birthday cake, playing on a tablet uh, when a bullet came through the front window uh, of his home and struck him in the head. And he bled out while his mother tried to perform CPR to save his life. Um, Louisville had 188 murders last year, 173 the year before that. Uh, we had uh, more than 20 children killed 
uh, last year. And that's what that looks like. Um, when these things don't work well, the most vulnerable members of our community who are in the most desperate need of the most basic functions of government and civil society are the ones who suffer the most. Yeah. Joshua Crawford, uh, that's why we will continue to talk about these issues, uh, because uh, police and like education, like a lot of other things, it affects all of us in some way, shape or form. And we need to have these conversations about it. Appreciate your time today, sir. Let folks know where you're writing, what you got going on in your social media so they can continue to follow you and get good information like you gave us today. Well, you can find all my stuff uh, either on Pegasus's website, which is PegasusKentucky.org. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all the social media platforms. Fantastic stuff. I appreciate your time. We'll have you back on to update this because it's an election year. Uh, so I suspect we'll hear a lot about criminal justice and the crime rate and things like that. Look forward to having you back and we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. Touching up on something we've already been covering, uh, these humanitarian corridors. Uh, this is something you need to pay attention to because they're not being covered correctly in Western media. We saw these in Syria. We saw these in Grozny. We saw them in other places. The humanitarian corridors are as much a weapon to the Russian military as tanks and bombs are. This is part of their plan. They want a humanitarian catastrophe. They want streams of refugees. They want to harass the civilian population. And these humanitarian corridors that are being uh, negotiated are not what they seem. They're not safe passages uh, from the BBC. Um, day 12, the latest developments, they have a running blog. I highly recommend you keep up with it. Uh, attacks are said to be continuing despite, despite a proposal from Russia to create safe escape routes out of Kiev, Maryspool, Sumy, and Karakiv. Ukraine branded the proposal, quote, immoral after it emerged that many of the routes, these are the humanitarian corridors, would only take civilians to Russia or its ally proxy state, Belarus. We've been telling you for, since this conflict started, folks, these humanitarian corridors by the Russians are a weapon. They want to funnel and weaponize the refugees. They want to control where people go. And they have a nasty habit of breaking the ceasefire, shelling, bombing, and in some cases, even mining these routes to further harass the civilian population. We got to get it through our heads what kind of war is being waged here. Vladimir Putin is not waging war on the Ukrainian military, although he's fighting them. He's trying to crush the civilian population of Ukraine into submission. And when you harass refugees, you get them running, you get them scared, you get them without anything, then you can crush them out in the open and you can protect where they go. And you can steer them like cattle. These are weapons. They're not negotiating points. And they're not the humanitarian corridors that they're being presented on. It's just one more way the Russians are going to try to win this war by crushing the Ukrainians' freedom and independence. How do we know this? Because they did it in Syria. Now, for some reason, we didn't pay attention to that one the way the world should have and all the war crimes that were committed there. Maybe we will this time. But all you got to do is go back and look. This is the Russians' M.O., their military isn't doing well fighting the military, so they're going to do what they've been doing for years, and they're going to fight civilians because they think they can win that fight. And God help us if we don't stand up as a world and try to do something to stop them because we're watching war crimes against innocent civilians in real time. 
More Hertel right after this. Ah, Hertel Show, you know we always try to end on a good note, uplifting note. This is an amazing story. Paul Devaney is a man in County Down in Ireland. He left Northern Ireland on Friday for a mammoth journey to Poland, where he dropped off two van loads of donations for the Ukrainian people. Uh, I actually heard this story listening to Sky News. First of all, you can go to uh, news.sky.com. That's the American website, skynews.uk if you want to listen to it or watch it overseas. But he said, I've had a daughter myself, and there's a saying that for evil to triumph, all it takes is good men to do nothing. I couldn't in my heart start last Monday morning. Normally, I came in, had a meeting with my team. We said, let's do this. From then on, it's just been 24 hours a day. Donations of medical supplies, baby foods, hygiene products fill every nook of Paul's office. You really need to go watch the video. It's amazing. He has this warehouse space and office space, and it's absolutely overflowing with donations they've been taking in of this material. Um, he's then what they did was they didn't just send it off. They didn't just donate it. They loaded up two vans, put it on a ferry, went over to Belgium and then drove them personally from Belgium all the way to the Polish Ukrainian border where they were given to, uh, Polish aid workers who then took it directly into Ukraine. And when he talked about it, he said, this way, I know it gets exactly where it's going to go. So when I come back and tell our local folks, they know exactly where it's going because I'm personally taking it there and guaranteeing it. It's over a 14-hour drive just from Belgium to the border. That's not counting the ferry ride and the drive across Ireland. This is an amazing story, but when you get down to the bottom of it, Mr. Davinis um, says the community, you see it for yourself, and he's gesturing to the warehouse full of stuff. It's, it's stacked floor to ceiling. It's an incredible visual. You see it for yourself. There's old, there's young. Everybody's just been bringing stuff. We put the call out for what is needed and what is required, and it just hasn't stopped. It's been fantastic. We have a large population of Polish and Ukrainians, and we're all in one community now. Heaven forbid it happens to us. Listen to this quote. This is Paul Devaney. This is the guy that's setting all this up and physically taking it down there along with a team of a couple other people. Heaven forbids it happens to us, and nobody did anything. And that's why I think we need to stand up, make ourselves count, and to do something. Mr. Devaney, along with four other people, made the journey with two vans all the way there, all the way back. They plan to continue to do it as long as they need to do it. Uh, he said the last load, there were 60 sleeping bags alone. Those are 60 sleeping bags that will keep 60 people warm in Kiev tomorrow night. And they were in Ireland two days ago. We shall all realize what we can achieve when we all come together. That'll do it for her to tell. What a great story. A um, lot of light out there with all the darkness in the world. We just got to take a little extra time to go find it. We'll keep doing that. However, you're watching or listening, if you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on any of the podcast services, we sure appreciate you. Thank you. Please make sure you're subscribing. That's the way to make sure you get the new episodes every weekday. You get the long form podcast. You get all the back catalog. We're well over 100 different things you can watch and listen on the back uh, archive, if you will. All of that, it's free to subscribe. All it does is cost you a click. You want to spend two clicks on us. You can share us. All of those platforms have a share button. Put us out on your social media. We do not advertise this show other than social media and word of mouth. And we're growing. So if you let people know our program is worth checking out, let people who may want their news and information and culture and political discussion without all the caterwauling, 
tell them come find us. We're happy to have them along. Make sure you reach out to us. We're happy to cover stuff on the store show that you want to hear about, that you want covered. We've had segments based off of reader feedback and reader questions and listener and watchers. Uh, just reach out, hertelshow at gmail.com, hertelshow at the twitter.com. Our guests and my Twitter accounts are also on the bottom third graphics during the show. Make sure you support all of them. We're glad to have you along. A lot going on in the world. We're going to continue to turn down the noise of the news cycle and bring you good information. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep doing it. Appreciate you all very much. So wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Somos la máquina.